2: Hey everybody, welcome to Battleground, the podcast where we bring you stories of people who faced challenges head on and emerged victorious. I am your host, Sean Parnell. I'm a combat veteran, I am a best-selling author, and in today's episode, we have a very, very special guest. His name is Jake Beckett. Jake is a pretty amazing guy. He's a former Division 1 College football player for the Arkansas Razorbacks. He's drafted by the New England Patriots. He played for the team. He won a Super Bowl with a uh, Super Bowl with them. He has a Super Bowl ring to prove it. Um, after he left the Patriots, retired from the NFL, Jake decided to enlist in the military and started completely over as a private. He then went to officer candidate school, and then he went to ranger school, and then he became a platoon leader in the 101st Airborne, where he led an infantry rifle platoon in combat in Iraq. He served his country, put his life on the line for his fellow soldiers in this amazing country that we live in. Uh, we talked about everything. We talked about Hard work and perseverance, and and making a Division One college football team, and then defying all the odds, being drafted uh, to the New England Patriots. What that call was like, how his family reacted. We talked about the Patriot way and what made the New England Patriots an exceptional, exceptional team. Uh, and then the humility that it took to leave the NFL. At the top of his game, on the best team in the NFL, to be a nothing burger burger private in the military, making like eighteen thousand dollars a year. So, uh, join us as we dive into Jake's journey from his time on the football field to his service in the military. This conversation's amazing. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jake Beckett. Jake Beckett, welcome to Battleground, man. It's it's great to have you.
3: Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the podcast. Um, you know, looking looking forward to getting into this.
2: <laughs> well, thanks, man. That that means a lot. I I mean, I just started this podcast a few months ago. I understand you've got one as well when we were just talking prior to to going live that if you're not in this space you should be because it's growing like gangbusters, that's for sure.
3: It really is. It's such a fun format. Um, You know, you you know, from being a candidate, you know, when you're doing media hits and you're on TV, you only get maybe 10 or 15 seconds to really make your point. And there's a back and forth. If you're on a panel, there's kind of a debate going on. It's unpredictable. I mean, this format with the longer form, you know, being able to take a deeper dive into interesting topics and have on, uh, you know, interesting guests. And it's just it's a great way to curate your own content, get your thoughts out there and build your own, you know, semi quasi sovereign platform, if you will, um, and to get away from the, the corporate media, I think it's a great format.
2: Man, I totally agree. And having run for office twice now, once for Congress in Western Pennsylvania, and then for Senate, I, you realize pretty quickly, even with conservative media on your side, as we're we're both Republicans, um, the narrative can get away from you pretty fast. And, and what I realized is like, man, if I had, if I if I had something like this during my congressional during my Senate run, I didn't necessarily need to filter what I was saying through whatever lens the media wanted to paint me and I could just go directly to the people just like this as often as I wanted with an already built platform That's the future Jake you know and any candidate frankly thinking about running for any office should be th- should be doing something like this just building up their brand uh, in their area so that they can go directly to the people you know?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I had a conversation along these lines with Anna Polina Luna before she was elected, with Matt Gates mm-hmm. uh, before he started his own podcast. I mean, you see a lot of members of Congress, Ted Cruz, who they, they've created their own their own podcast, their own format where they control the content, they control the message. And it, it's not like they're trying to censor anything, but it's just a way to get all of our ideas out there in a way that we can control and we're, we're not having to filter. or or not having what were said filtered through a lens that is not our own or through a prism or a worldview that we don't necessarily share. So I I think that's really important. And, you know, as we were saying before, you know, we went live, like I I think with the with the whole Tucker Carlson debacle over at Fox News, like I I think what's going to happen is um, that's only going to accelerate a growing trend, which is, um, you know, conservative, you know, consumers of, uh, of conservative content are gonna be migrating to, to these digital platforms streaming platforms podcasts um, you know very few people that that I know who are around our age and um, and even older are, are really watching these these legacy uh, cable channels I mean there's still a lot of people who watch the news but uh, I think it's gonna it's gonna decline over time there's gonna be more people who are looking for an alternative and uh, it's just an exciting space to be in
2: I, it is man uh, so I I want to talk about you uh, for a little bit. I mean, just so viewers and listeners understand, Jake, you are a, a Division One football player, Arkansas Razorback, uh, 2012 Cotton Bowl uh, MVP, right? Um, also drafted by the Patriots, played for the Patriots, have a Super Bowl ring with the Patriots, and then ran – for Senate in Arkansas in the 2022 cycle, which is an entirely different journey. If you've not done it, it's just something that you have to do to fully understand. But you do. So, Jake, how? give me a sense of, of what your childhood was like. And, and wait, I wait, I, I forgot the most important part of your bio, for God's sake. You were in the Army. So after you were a professional football player, you, you left the NFL and then you enlisted and became... You know, an enlisted soldier and then went to officer candidate school and then an officer, a young officer for the 101st Airborne. So, obviously, you went to airborne school, ranger school, went to Iraq. You got to give me a sense of what your childhood was like to have that kind of a bio at what you were born in '89. So, what, man, you're like 34 years old. How the hell? I'm older than you. So, I'm like eight years older than you. I'm 41. How have you done so much in your life, man? You're only 34.
3: Well, it's I, I appreciate that it's it's been a great journey thus far, and, and you know hopefully, uh, we're we're still in the, in the early chapters. Um, but yeah, I was raised in a in a sports family, in a football family. Uh, a lot of people outside the state don't know, but uh, I'm a third generation Arkansas Razorback football player. My grandpa played for the Hogs back in the 1950s. That was before they had face masks. Uh, and he had the, he had the smile to prove it. I mean, he didn't have any teeth <laughs> left by, by the time he was uh, in his sixties or seventies. Um, and then his son, uh, two two, both of his sons, uh, one of whom is my dad uh, and my uncle Chris, uh, Jay and Chris, they both played for the University of Arkansas back in the late seventies and early eighties. Um, and then you know, I, I guess I joined the, the family business. Um, you know, I I really dedicated myself to to athletics at a young age. I was very blessed. Uh, to be raised in a home that valued hard work, and um, you know, my, my dad came to me when I was around 12 or 13 years old, and you know, he was like, "Hey, you know, son, playtime is over. Uh, it's time to go to work." And you know, since I'm a generous father, I'm going to give you a choice. You know, you can you can get into the economy. You can work a job. Uh, you know, you can bag groceries, um, or you can you can dedicate yourself to a, a skill like joining the band or playing an instrument or doing something like that you know, or you can, you know, dedicate yourself to sports, you know, you like sports, and I I was into sports. And, you know, that was really not a hard decision for me. But I I really (laughs) was able to treat sports, like I was a professional, um, you know, around the age of 12 or 13. I mean, I was, you know, 12, 14, 16 hour days, um, you know, of course, with school in there, but, you know, really, I was totally focused on achieving the goal of, of following in my my grandpa and dad's footsteps and getting a division one scholarship and playing for the hogs got the helmet uh behind me over my shoulder there and um you know i was just i was really blessed to, to have that opportunity uh to play um you know in the sec you know we're, we're very proud of our of our college football down here in the <laughs> south sean um you know I, it, pro sports are a bigger thing up in um up in the north and northeast i know pennsylvania you know with, with penn state i mean y'all you all care about college sports as well uh, I'm just saying in general, you know, we we really care about our football down here in the SEC. And it was a lot of fun to play, uh, you know, w- w- with some good teams and a great conference and to then have the opportunity to play professionally.
2: So, Jake, you said you were 12 or 13 when you really said you were able to focus on what, 12, 13 hour days, 14 hour days, dedicating yourself to being a football player. I mean, and and doing well in school. Where did you get the presence of mind to do that as a twelve-year-old? Because I feel like I didn't have that level of focus at all, (laughs) not even not even close.
3: Yeah, I mean, it it came it came straight from my dad and my grandfather, uh, his his father. I mean, they really, you know, I I had some physical gifts, but I was never by any means the most talented guy around. Um, But you know, what I did have was some was some native ability and some intelligence and a work ethic, and really, I, I tried to leverage those to the best of my ability and. Just a typical day when i was like in high school i mean i would get up at 5 30 i would go to the gym um at our school we would do um you know there was a special group of guys uh who were kind of doing some extra work to train we do that in the morning before school you know go to school i would you know utilize study hall time lunch time to get all my homework and you know studying for tests the next day out of the way you know would then go to you know either football practice basketball practice or off season you know, in the, in the weight room after school was over. And then when I got done with that, you know, whether it was, you know, football or basketball practice, I would then go home. We had a little, uh, shed in our backyard that we converted into kind of a mini weight room. We called it the dungeon <laughs> and I would get another weight workout in and, you know, would finish up around seven, seven 30, dinner and then go to sleep around nine, nine 30 and get up and do it again the next day. Like that was, that was the level of dedication, um, you know, that, that I had to have to achieve my goals. And, you know, really, I just I try to carry that mentality with me. Um, and I, I did that in college in the pros and in and, and the military and uh, on the political campaign
2: trail as well. Jake, I uh, that's amazing. I mean, I've always thought that you know i was an athlete i mean i've never played division 1 sports or anything but i wrestled played baseball played ice hockey um all throughout high school but again that level of dedication is unbelievable i mean and you're no you're no slouch man i was reading your stat line for the draft like you're 6'5 275 running a seven you're a freaking beast man <laughs> that's ridiculous that's ridiculous so yeah, obviously I mean, all that hard work paid off
3: <laughs> yeah i mean something my grandpa told me when i was a kid always stuck with me you know he he always said if If you're only doing what everyone else is doing around you, you're only improving at the same rate that they are. So really, you know, relatively, you're not improving at all. You're you're just you're you're kind of going along with the flow. You're you're not really separating yourself. So you know, whatever domain that you apply that to, I I think it's really it's it's it might sound simple, but it it really rings true that you know if you want to separate yourself, if you want to strive for true excellence in whatever field that you're in. You got to you be willing to do what no one else around you is willing to do, and that's not always easy. You know, people talk about it, but um, you know, the, the 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 proof is in the results, and you know, that's that's something that I, I've tried to carry with me that those lessons, um, you know, in, in whatever endeavor I was pursuing.
2: So, you've dedicated yourself to to playing football. You'll say you're a, a junior, senior, you're applying for colleges. And you're waiting to see if you've been accepted, or maybe you're going to some like recruiting meetings. And I'm sure you've went to. Did you go to any other recruiting meetings other than just uh, for for the Razorbacks?
3: Yeah, I I wasn't one of these top 100, you know, national recruits. You know, I I was a kind of mid level recruit. Um, I had some other good Division one offers, and you know that process is pretty interesting. Um, But it it wasn't like I had you know Alabama, Notre Dame, USC, uh, you know, knocking down my door, Penn State. Um, you know, I, I, knew that when Arkansas, you know, whenever Arkansas offered me, I was going to accept on the spot. You know, I, I had, uh, the head coach at the time, uh, he called me uh, to, to formally offer me a scholarship. And I mean, before he could even get the words out of his mouth, I accepted. <laughs> and he, you know, he, he started laughing. I, I still it was Houston nut coach, Houston nut. Um, we, we still keep in touch. He's a good man. And, um, he was like, you know, Jake, you know, I, I've been in your shoes, you know, take 24 hours and think about this. I don't want you to to make a decision emotionally. And I I looked at my watch. I said, hey, coach, it's 335. You know, I'm going to call you at 335 tomorrow afternoon and tell you the same thing. And that's exactly what I did. I mean, I I wanted to be a Razorback, as you can imagine growing up in my household. That was the one thing that I wanted to do. Um, And so, yeah, when when I got the Arkansas offer, it was a no-brainer.
2: Were you worried that maybe you wouldn't get one? I mean, I got to believe that you were. I mean, if that's all you did from the time you were 12, 13 on... You you worried that you maybe you weren't going to get that call maybe maybe not you worked your ass off I mean you probably you probably figured it was just a matter of time I don't know but what what's that like when you're waiting for that for that phone call?
3: Yeah, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself and um, yeah I mean when you when you strive for anything I mean there's always that risk that it's not going to work out um, but you know I, I really um, I, I failure what really wasn't an option for me I just I always had a, a good feeling that you know, if I handled my business, if I, if I did the proper things, um, you know, if I, if I stayed healthy and stayed hungry, that it was going to work out. Um, and, and it did. And it was kind of the, kind of the similar, uh, similar feeling on draft night, you know, waiting for a phone call from an NFL team. Um, you know, that's a, that that's a feeling unlike any other, you know, the NFL draft just happened um, over, the, over the past weekend. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's always fun, you know, looking back to, to see those guys with their families as they're waiting, because it's, it's so stressful, you know, there's just, it's, it, it, time draws out like a blade, you can just see the, you can feel the tension among the players, um, but really, you know, w- when you get that call, whenever it is, there, there really is no feeling like that, because, I mean, not only do you know you're in for a pretty good paycheck, but, you know, you, you know that, you know, like everything, you know, all your hard work, you know, from the time you were a kid to that moment, uh, it's it's meant something. Um, you know, there's been a bit of a payoff and, you know, it just, it feels good to have a team want you like that. That they, they, you know, they care enough about you to, 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 to write your name on that draft card and put their name next to your name. Um, and it's just a, it's a great feeling and it's just, it's fun for me every year to see those guys, uh, achieve their lifelong dream.
2: Man, I want to ask you about the draft. So put a pin in that. I've got some questions about what that's like, uh, but I yeah. don't want to skip over four years of your life as a Razorback. Today. I want to talk about something that's been on the minds of many Americans lately, energy independence. With rising energy prices and geopolitical tensions, it's more important than ever for our country to be self-sufficient when it comes to our energy needs. And that's where Deep Well Services comes in. They're a company that's not only dedicated to delivering top-notch services to the oil and gas industry, but they're also committed to the goal of American energy independence. With their cutting-edge technology and expert team of professionals, they're helping to unlock new sources of domestic energy and reduce our dependence on foreign oil. But that's not all. Deepwell Services is also a great American company that's hiring like crazy right now. And they're not just looking for anyone. They're seeking out talented and hardworking individuals who wanna join their team and make a difference. And with competitive salaries and benefits, it's a great opportunity to not only work for a patriotic company, but also build a rewarding career in the energy sector. So if you're looking for a job with purpose and meaning, or if you're simply passionate about American energy independence then you should definitely check out Deepwell Services. Visit their website at deepwellservices.com to learn more about their company and career opportunities. You you got to tell me what it was like. So you get you get the letter, you know you're going there. You're 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 so you're a freshman. What is going through your mind? When you're walking on to a Division One football team, you know, a, a real a really great SEC team, right? You're a freshman now, going in, going, going on to that team. What are you thinking about?
3: Well, I mean, I think every freshman, um, I, I always tell people the the biggest. They ask me, "Hey, what's the biggest jump? Is it from high school to college or college to pro?" The biggest jump by far is high school to college because. You know, when you're, what you know, in high school, if you're a, if you're a D1 recruit, you're not only the best player on your team, you're probably the best player you've ever seen, um, you know, in any game in in any you know season throughout your high school career, most likely. Uh, when you go to college, everyone on your team is that guy, wow. and and <laughs> and you know, it's 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 a super ultra competitive environment. I remember my first year, um, I was on the defensive scout team. And my my freshman year, Arkansas, in the in the same backfield on our on our football team, we had Darren McFadden, Doke Walker, winner. We had Felix Jones, another first round draft pick, and Peyton, and Peyton Hillis, who was later on the cover of Madden. You know, great running back in the NFL. Those were our three running backs on the same college football team. Wow. And you know, I remember like you know like rushing the edge and. You know, just kind of, you know, just you know, thinking that I was a big tough guy and Darren McFadden came in there and, you know, he, on, on just a, a simple pass block, he hit me so hard. I, I went flying like a Frisbee through the air and, you know, that was just everyone's kind of got their welcome to the SEC moment. And that really was it <laughs> for me. You know, when I was when I was flying through the air, I kind of thought to myself, man, like these guys are pretty good. And you know, but really, it was it was a good experience for me because you know I I had to rededicate myself, I had to recalibrate my goals and um, double my efforts to to you know achieve the goals that I had, which were to become a a starter and become a good college player, because the guys were so good. And you know, we can get into it if you want, but like we, I I came into Arkansas kind of at at an interesting time. Um, The coach who recruited me, Houston Nutt, he got fired after my freshman season, and I think that ultimately worked my benefit because the new staff came in. Cleaned house. He he really wanted to change the culture of the program, and that really worked out for me because you know I was I was a hard nosed guy. The the harder the tougher the environment really played to my strengths, Um, and I was able to kind of work my way into the roster, into the rotation, and play a lot my first couple of years when I probably didn't deserve it. Um, But we we weren't very good, and you know but it was fun to be a part of a process, part of a team. That started off, you know, really bad. I mean, we were we were horrible my first couple of years, but we we grew together, we developed, we bought in to the system um, that Coach Petrino instilled in us. Um, and by my last two years, man, we we went twenty one and five. My last two years, we finished number five in the country. My senior year, and it was just a, it was awesome to be a part of that.
2: I mean, what's it like running out of that tunnel your senior year, uh, ranked number five in the Cotton Bowl, probably what hundred thousand fans. In the stands, yeah. what's it like running out of that tunnel as someone who's trained their whole life for that moment?
3: It's it's incredible, and it's it's hard to describe to people who aren't from a state like Arkansas what it's like <laughs> to play for the Razorbacks. I mean, Arkansas—it's a small state, just about three million people. We don't have any pro sports in the state, so the University of Arkansas, the Razorbacks—they're our team. And you know that really the the morale of the state really rises and falls with the success of the Razorback sports program. Um, there was this old sports writer named Orville Henry who I think said it best. Um, you know, he said that you know the people of Arkansas realize that it's not just wins and losses; it's the honor of the state that is at stake. And you know that really that that, that might seem like a joke, but it's 100 percent true. Um, you know, if you're from Arkansas or if you're from kind of an SEC school, you know, Penn State might be like that for Pennsylvania, but it's really special here. Um, and so, yeah, to, to be a part of a good Arkansas Razorback football team is just – it's incredible. Um, you know, you don't want to live in the past or, you know, be the chairman and CEO of the can't-let-it-go club. But, you know, you, you do you – know, I have pride in, in looking back at those teams. And, you know, I was a team captain twice. And, you know, we, just, we had a great group of guys. And just to, to see our development um, and, and our, our bonding and just how we pushed ourselves, you know, did the hard things – um, you know, we, we had, we, we had these, uh, you know, during the off seasons, I started this, this tradition, um, where we'd have, we'd go out there on Saturdays into the weight room, we called it Saturday gun club. And, you know, we, we would go in there and just, you know, just have the music blaring, you know, some guys just really getting after it in there, just like totally suasponte. I mean, no, no coaches there. Um, no one supervising. It was just something we did. We actually got in trouble because some of our more redneck teammates, they actually brought guns. <laughs> To the Saturday Gun Club workout one time, you know that that's, <laughs> um, you know, just you know that's it, it, part of being in Arkansas, which is you know kind of great, but yeah, you know it, it's that that was the mentality we had that we weren't going to be stopped, you know, we weren't going to um, be outworked, you know, we weren't going to be outplanned, we weren't going to be out hustled. and it's just great to to see the rewards of that. Uh,
2: so that's leadership, man. It, it clearly, team captain the last you said two years, two years, uh, obviously. Building that team was something that was immensely important to you. It's something that obviously you're proud of as well. And I think, you know, you're going in that weight room and and building a sense of collective identity. You know, th- that camaraderie had to pay off dividends on the field. You know, what were what were some of the things that you were focused on in terms in terms of principles that you wanted to instill in the players on that team, especially freshmen, sophomores coming up? You
3: know it's a it's a great question, and you know we we certainly found out in our first couple of seasons. Um, and and I got to give Coach Petrino a lot of credit for for doing this. I mean he he was intentionally trying to run some of the bad apples out of our program. Um, you know he knew that uh, with some people uh, it was going to be addition by subtraction, and you know a lot of people don't want to believe that they, they they think that everyone can kind of come around, but you know, when, when the, you know, in New England, we kind of had a saying with the Patriots, you know, the, the trains left the station, it's going hundred miles an hour, either get on or you get run over. And <laughs> I, I just, I think that's, that's the kind of mentality you have to have in any successful organization, because you're really only as strong as your weakest link. And if you let people who aren't fully bought in, if they, if you let them, if you allow them to drag everyone down, um, you know, then you're not going to be as sharp. You're not going to be uh, as elite as you possibly could so you know we weren't we, we weren't afraid uh, afraid to 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 crack a few eggs um you know to 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 achieve our goals and to you know make sure everyone who was on the team was was pulling in the same direction and so I really it wasn't just me I mean we had some some other great leaders and some great coaches um but you know really ev- everyone bought into that mentality and you know I, I still talk about it with my former teammates I mean that's that's really um you know that's the kind of culture that you want to replicate you know whether you're in a football team or you know in a infantry platoon or you know on a campaign or you know in in office or in running a business, uh, you know wherever you are, you know like culture matters and, and leadership matters. And um, you know I, I you know I was I was uh, I, I like to watch this clip from time to time of, of Michael Jordan. Uh, it was during that uh, um, the Last Dance series um, on Netflix and. You know, there's this episode where he talks about leadership and he talks about, uh, well, he his former teammates and him were both talking about, you know, hey, like, you know, Jordan, he wasn't a nice guy. And, you know, he he wasn't everyone's buddy. And, you know, Jordan, he, he even got emotional kind of talking about it. He was like, you know, that's, you know, leadership has a price. And, and you know, creating a championship culture, you know, creating a winning culture, creating a winning country, you know, if you want to extrapolate it, you know, to America, that has a price. You know, you're, you're not going to be able to be every you know, to coddle everyone. You're not going to have the luxury of, you know, just saying that, you know, whatever you want to do is OK. Um, you know, just, yeah, you do you over here. I'm going to do me over here. But it's all going to work out in the end. That's just that's not how it works. Um, and in any successful organization, you know, I think that culture is present.
2: I, it's, I totally agree. And I, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I, I know for me You know, being on championship teams is something that has been extraordinarily rare in my life and every championship team that I've been on. And that that goes for like even even business organizations or like in an infantry platoon, you know, I mean, any team that's elite, there's something there. There's a feeling that exists in the hearts and minds of the people that are on the team that just sets you apart. And it's difficult to put put your finger on it at the time. But I look back on those moments, and one of the things that I, I, I feel like I was real blessed after being in the infantry and, and being a platoon leader in combat was that it gave me a sense of, of, of really what made up a, a, a truly great team and the ability to identify it. And it sounds like you know, you're know you talking about thinking back on being the team captain your junior and your senior year as a Razorback. I mean, it sounds like you had a similar a similar experience there. And I mean, obviously, you know, you go from a, you know, to put it simply, like a, a team that perhaps wasn't so good to a team that had five losses in two years, right? Is that what you said? Five that's losses. Right. I mean, that's yeah. ama- that's amazing. I mean, in f- a four-year time period, you were able to turn it around that much is is truly extraordinary, man.
3: Yeah, and, and you know, I, I agree with everything you said, and, and really, the the results speak for themselves, and you you really can't you can't do it without that kind of culture. I mean. Um, you know, just to skip ahead to, to the New England experience, you know, we call it the Patriot Way. Um, and, you know, we, I, I noticed this. It, it still shocks me to think about it. But, you know, we had other uh, NFL veteran players who would come in um, to the program through trades or free agency. I mean, like big name players. I'm not like I'm not denigrating these guys, uh, but like Robert Gallery, he played 10 years in the league. Uh, Reggie Wayne, he'll probably end up being a Hall of Famer for the Colts uh you know kellen winslow these guys came into the patriots program and after like a week of training camp they went to bill they went to coach belichick and said hey coach uh i'm gonna retire you know this is i, I don't need this um you know y- y- y'all are getting after it too hard i'm not used to the way the you know, practices run i'm not used to the way this is you know things are being done here so i'm just gonna go ahead and retire well like that's the level of wow. intensity um, that that you know the 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 Patriots organization that's the level they were at and that was set by Belichick that was set by Brady and really it was a great preparation for me to go from you know what I experienced at the University of Arkansas um, you know to to a team that was that was built similarly uh, in terms of culture uh, being the Patriots
2: so let's talk about that for a second Jake so you're so. Y- You're a senior. Is there some sense that you're going to get drafted, or like the coach is saying to you when you're a senior? You're like, "Hey, kid, like you really got a shot here." If you, is that do those conversations happen?
3: Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I've always had goals. I've always been a goal setter. You know, I've had a goal sheet. Since the day I was, you know, twelve years old, <laughs> that's, um, re-
2: that's I'm telling you, man, that's crazy. I've got five yeah. kids of my own. Uh, I've got two girls that are both twelve, and they are motivated. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think they have a goal sheet saying that they they want to be a professional athlete yet. And I don't yeah. want to shortchange them. I could be totally wrong because I got two highly motivated twelve-year-old girls. But still,
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and it's not just you know, I, I, my dad. He he always had it broken down into categories: um, athletic, academic, and then personal, spiritual um, in different time frames three months, six months, a year and three years. So it's not just athletic, but I mean, yeah, like it's, it's, I, I first got the idea that I had the chance to play professionally, um, my junior year of college, you know, I kind of had to recalibrate my goals. Like I, I, you know, my, my goal was always just to kind of play at Arkansas and be a good player. And, you know, I made all conference my junior year and um, <laughs> I, I started getting some attention from, um, you know, the, the university brought in like some sports agents to talk to us, to, to talk to the guys who might have an opportunity to play professionally. And I was like, wow, like, you think I had a chance to play in the pros? And they're like, yeah, man, like, you know, you're 6'5 and you can run and you've got production. Um, and so, you know, that, that was kind of it kind of clicked for me. OK, like, you know, I, I can I can I can play at the next level. Um and yeah I mean I knew that um the draft process is pretty interesting you know you, you go to the I played in the Senior Bowl which is an all-star game uh for college grads uh then I went to the NFL combine in Indianapolis which I'm sure a lot of guys who follow football know what that is where you work out and do all the drills um and then from you know the intervening time between that and draft uh te- NFL teams can can work you out individually Um, so I, I, only a few teams sent scouts to Arkansas to work me out. And one was the Patriots. And I knew they really liked me. Um, and you know, my, my agent, the the way the draft is structured, obviously there's the first round. I knew I wasn't going to be a first round pick. Then there's the second night, which is rounds two and three. And he was like, Hey, you know, probably not gonna be round two, but you know, towards the end of the third, he was like, look out for the Patriots. And I'll never forget. I was, I was sitting there, I was at home with my parents and my grandparents, my brothers, and um you know we were just kind of hanging out, keeping it loose. You know, we didn't want to, you know, think about it too much, but we had that we had the draft kind of on in the background that I noticed out of the corner of my eye uh with pick 89 in the third round, it was the New Orleans Saints. And then right after that, pick 90 uh was the New England Patriots. And when it said the Patriots are now on the clock, my phone rang and it was an unknown phone number and I was like, "Man, I bet that's them." Um and yeah, that was uh, it. Was it was Coach Belichick and and Mr. Kraft, the owner of the team, and um, it was just a, it was just an amazing feeling.
2: Oh man, I was going to ask you, like, what what are you doing? You know, waiting on the call. Like, are you like Brett Favre, sit, like laying there on a bed in a pair of jean shorts, With like, my short, yeah. like yeah, <laughs> like what what are you doing? You're just uh, how could I mean like you're not i was like what is jake out at a cracker barrel or something with his family his phone rings like so it's it's you get the call what is what does robert Kraft or bill belichick say to you
3: well we for my family you know we we try to keep it as low-key as possible you know we didn't want it to be this big production and um you know didn't have didn't have any cameras around you know i i wanted it to be um, you know, just the way I liked it, which was with my family. And, you know, if it, if it happened to that night, it did, if not, we get it the next day. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was fun. Um, you know, when the phone rang, of course, everyone started freaking out and, you know, you, you know, I, I answered the phone and you know, this is one of those moments you'll, you'll never forget. I mean, I answered the phone and it was coach Belichick's assistant and he just said, you know, Hey Jake, uh, hold for coach Belichick. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll hold for coach Belichick. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Bill gets on the line and, and just his classic, you know, monotone, he's like, hey, Jake, uh, you know, we're going to pick you right here, pick 90, uh, you know, really excited to get you on the team. Um, hold for Mr. Kraft. And I'm like, <laughs> like, okay, like that, that, that was it. And so he, he passed the phone to Mr. Kraft, uh, Robert Kraft, the owner. And, you know, Mr. Kraft is this just like grandfatherly figure. Um, and he's like, hey, Jake, um, you know, we, we hear you're really smart. And it's like... Uh, if you say so, he's, he's <laughs> like, yeah. You know, you're a you're a business major. You know, graduated in three years. I'm like, yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. He goes, well, yeah, we, we really like you, and we can't wait to get you up here. Um, and and that really was it. You know, they we they handled the logistics. I flew up there the next day, and um, it, it was just a it was a it was a fun night. Um, you know, we really really celebrated um, that night, and um, it was just a it, it was a whirlwind. I mean, you just you know your life's about to change, and You know, for me, I I lived my entire life in the South. Most of my family is from uh, Arkansas and Texas. And, um, you know, I'd been to the Northeast briefly um, to New York and D.C., but I'd never been to Massachusetts, uh, had never really uh, been up in in New England. Um, So it was it was it was a new experience, a culture shock. But, man, it was a it was a blessing to to be up there and and be a part of the Patriot way.
2: So what did they do? They flew you up the next day. Did they 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 at least fly you first class?
3: Yeah, they I think they flew me first class. I mean, there's not a lot of not a lot of big jets coming in out of Little Rock. uh, Airport. (laughs) But, you know, we we, we got up there and, um, you know, it it really was just kind of an initial visit to meet the coaches. And uh, I I met some of the other guys who were drafted around me. We had an amazing draft class that year. Uh, We we had uh, the, the Patriots traded up, which is rare um they traded up into the first round and, and picked two first round picks Chandler Jones and Dante Hightower uh two two, two guys who were who had freaking incredible careers um and, and who have made a lot of money um and we had in my class Tavon Wilson who had a great career uh, Nate Ebner um who just finished up like a 10-year career I mean we had a lot of guys who, who did really well it was a great draft class um and so you know we we got to know everyone and um, you know, really, it was about two weeks after that where I moved up to Boston uh, permanently. And, you know, that's when you get into rookie minicamp and you really, you know, you, you either jump on the train or you get
2: run over. Man, I have so many questions. So, so, so you're, you're up in New England and Gillette, right? And- yep so you 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 get the call from belichick right and he's like his little monotone like I, by, by the way as as someone who is run for office i know you appreciate this but how belichick deals with the press i ab- i absolutely love to this day his press conferences are amazing <laughs> his press conferences it's are fantastic. amazing yeah he's fantastic. the best um so you're on you're on the same team then you get drafted in 2012 you're on the same team with with tom Brady. Oh, it was Rob Gronkowski on the team in 2012 oh, yeah. and Romp was so, on the team Hernandez, uh, as, Hernandez as well. Yeah, right, team. right. That's that whole team. Did yeah. you learn anything from those guys?
3: Yeah, it really was. Uh, I mean maybe not
2: Hernandez, period. but but, well, yeah, but maybe
3: I, I learned, Brady. I, I yeah, I learned what not to do from Hernandez. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean being around Tom Brady, I, I like to tell the story, um you know, the the first the first full team meeting that we had to start the 2012 season was in May, I believe, of that year uh, after the draft in April. And that's when all the vets came in for minicamp. And, um, you know, it, it was, you know, Bill was kind of giving his recap of the previous year that the team had just lost the Super Bowl to the Giants uh, the year before. Oh, my um, gosh. And, I remember. And, and, yeah, in, in 2011. And so... is that, um,
2: Was that the one with Plex Burris caught the, the, the one-handed pass? Was that...
3: No, well, th- no, that was, uh, that was David Tyree. That was the year, that was 07. That was oh, like right, the, right, 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 the right. season. The the 2011 Super Bowl, um, that was the one in Indianapolis that was just a close game and the Giants won. Uh, Mario Manningham had that long catch down the side. Oh, sideline. I remember,
2: I remember, I remember. Yeah,
3: it was just another, like, I mean, the Giants just kind of had the Patriots number, man. Uh, Tom Coughlin was a hell of a good coach. Um, but anyway, it, so so Bill was kind of giving his recap of the season and, I'll never forget. So, so Tom walks in, and you know he 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 takes his seat in the in the team meeting room. It's you know just like an auditorium, as you can imagine. And you know he sits there front row center. And I'll never forget. You know Bill's kind of giving his expectations for the season, and um, I'm sure it's the same speech that Tom had heard 15 times before that, um, and would hear 10 more times after that. But you know there Brady was, and he was sitting in his seat, and he had his he had his notebook out. And he was sitting up in a chair, and he was just—he was furiously scribbling notes, just paying attention to everything Bill was saying. Um, You know, was very engaged. You could just tell with his body language. And I mean, like that had an effect on the team. I mean, everyone's hey—if Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time, is is sitting up, taking notes, paying attention, engaged—if he's doing that in this like nothing meeting, then you know what? What does that mean for me? For a a no-name rookie? For all these other guys? who were just trying to make the roster. And so, really, that was part of the genius of the Patriot way is, you know, obviously, Belichick set the tone. He was the boss. But the most important guy, and I I say this, I mean, in college football, the most important guy in the room is the head football coach. In the professional game, the most important guy in the room is the starting quarterback. And Tom Brady and Belichick were on the same page about everything. And as hard as Bill pushed the team... If Tom wasn't fully on board, it never would have worked. You know, there would have been a locker room rebellion, which is what you saw, unfortunately, with a lot of other, um, you know, football teams, particularly uh, like former Patriots assistant coaches, like coordinators, like uh, Josh McDaniels, Romeo Cornell, uh, Charlie Weiss, um, you know, and many others, uh, Bill O'Brien, you know, uh, Matt Patricia and Detroit. Like they all tried to be Bill. But if you don't have the buy-in of the QB one and you don't win immediately, you know, like the head coach, like he's not nearly the highest-paid guy in the room, so the players aren't really going to listen to him. Like you're going to lose the locker room. So, so so that was a huge competitive advantage that the Patriots had was you had this very hard-charging, tough football coach, but you had the quarterback who was totally on board with everything, and you know that was just that was a tone setter from day one. I mean, obviously Gronk. Kept things light. I mean, I, I'll tell you a quick story about Gronk. <laughs> yeah. So, all, all the all the Patriots um, as as players, we all had these key fobs that gave us twenty four seven access to the Patriots facility. And you know, during the off season, you know, Gronk. I mean, I, I tell people ask me what Gronk's like. He's exactly how you imagine him to be like. <laughs> I mean, he, he like he loves to do two things: play ball and party. And he's really good at both of them. And he would he would go out in Boston or Providence. And he would have his his boys like drop him off at the at the Patriots facility at like two or three in the morning, and he would fob in and he would go and, and like fall asleep on the Patriots training table uh, <laughs> beds. And when the when the trainers would come in the next morning at like five thirty, they'd see Gronk laying there, and they wouldn't wake him up. They would just roll up his sleeve and give him an IV <laughs> and just like resurrect him and a couple hours later, the guys on the practice field just dominating, and that—that's when I realized, Sean, that like you know, my ceiling might be pretty high, but it's not—it's <laughs> not as high as some of these guys. I mean, uh, you know, I was—I was trying to do everything right, uh, you know—you know, work out twice a day, take care of my body, and then you see someone like Gronk, who's, you know, just an absolute freak of nature. I mean, great guy, worked hard, but like, you know, I, I couldn't—I could not have done what he was doing. Uh, in terms of extracurricular activities, and then performed in the way that he did. I mean, he was just unbelievable.
2: That is a uh, that's an amazing amazing story. I mean, I had. I mean, obviously, you've been in the infantry too. I mean, we've had guys popping IVs in themselves after a hard night of drinking or partying or whatever. But obviously, they're not playing NFL football. Yeah. Um, on on probably arguably the best team in the NFL. Uh, especially at the time. I mean, I, I'll tell you, as a Steelers fan and a, and a rabid football fan myself, I mean, I could not stand the Patriots, especially 2012, 2013, 14, 15. You talk about the Giants having the Patriots number. Well, the Patriots had the Steelers number all we the really time. All really the time, man. All the time. And and the Steelers back then, I mean, had Ben Roethlisberger as our QB1. Yeah. Had a hell of a team. Yeah. And – it just, I, I just thought Tom Brady was the Darth Vader of football. Is basically what I always used to say. And what's, what's funny is my wife is like a huge, huge Patriots fan, huge Patriots fan, and, um, and I'll tell you what though, man. I, obviously, I was a fan, didn't really know anything about Tom Brady personally, and, and, and sure as hell didn't know him the way that you do now. But when he moved to Tampa Bay, and you know, took Tampa Bay from basically like a losing football team to a Super Bowl champion in one year. It made me a believer in Tom Brady, man, because there's, yeah. he's obviously has something in his heart and his mind and the way that he performs on the field, the way he dedicates himself to the craft. He's got something that's contagious to other people on the team. And what he, you, you described it right there in that first meeting comes in, he's laser focused and he's taking notes. After hearing a speech that he's probably heard a hundred times, I mean that's amazing to me. That's fascinating.
3: He, he, he just he raised the level of performance of everyone around him, and that's that's just the mark of a great leader. Because you know, like any anyone can perform at a high level, but when you're when that's contagious, as you said, when you're when you're the when you're the rising tide that lifts all boats, you know you're you're something special. And I, I noticed it firsthand. I mean, guys would just. You know, it's you know, and Tom was good about it. You know, he would make a point to have a personal relationship with every guy in the team. You know, NFL teams—it's kind of cool. I mean, there's there's small teams. I mean, you only have like forty-five guys dress out um, every Sunday. I mean, an NFL sideline is pretty lonely. I mean, there's like no but no one there, um, and and so you really get to know everyone on the team really well. And you know, Brady, like you know, with the rookies, he was he would always do a good job of like. You know, I remember like one of my first weeks up there, um, I was having breakfast. I was in there early by myself and and he got there early too. And um, you know, he he made a point to just sit down next to me and just start talking and you know, we had a conversation, we were talking about golf or something. And I think he, he did that on purpose, I noticed, because he, he wanted to get everyone kind of over the oohs and ahs of, Oh my gosh, that's Tom Brady. Because like once you once you get over that, you know, you realize that you know, he's just a man like anyone else. And, you know, obviously he's he's the greatest quarterback of all time, in my opinion, but at the end of the day, he's still a man. And, you know, he he's, he, he he bleeds just like we bleed, and he's got emotions and a family. And, you know, it's just – I think that was important to make him to kind of humanize himself to the rest of the players so we could have a good working relationship. And, um, you know, I, I played some offense my my, lighter, uh, my my last year in New England, and, you know, I, I just I, – I got to experience firsthand, like – what made him so great as a quarterback? I mean, like when you're running routes, um, and you know, say you're a tight end, and you know you're you see cover two where you know you've got split safeties, and you're running the seam. Like you know the ball's coming to you. you know, like you know that you're the right read. And like if if, if you know say like I mean, nothing against some other quarterbacks, but like if if say like Jimmy Garoppolo or one of the other backups was in the in the huddle, you know like hey like maybe he'll see you. Like maybe the the pass will be on 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 the mark. But with Brady. You know, when you're running that route and you know you're open, like, you better get your head around because the ball's going to hit you right in the shoulder pads. Mm. Um, like, right when you clear that second level, like, like the, the ball is just, I mean, like, that that was Brady's true, that was his distinguishing factor. I mean, he was, he was the smartest QB in the league, and he was the most accurate, really him and Aaron Rodgers. And, you know, that was just, it, it was amazing to, to see that from both ends, from the defensive end. And then you know playing offense, you know have to see it from the other side of the chessboard. Um, So yeah, just being around that that level of excellence with the coaching staff and the players, you know defensive guys like Vince Wilfork and Gerard Mayo and Rob
2: Ninkovich. I mean, it was a really special group. So Jake, uh, so what do you think? You know, I'm asking you to speculate about Brady a little bit, but you know, he he people make fun of his draft class. picture you know no one thought that that guy was going to be the best quarterback in the history of the NFL was he born that way or did he work his ass off to get there he worked his ass off you know Tom I, I tell
3: these stories a lot too you know he was he was way ahead of the curve in terms of nutrition you know he he had a um, you know he had his own uh, nutritionist um you know we, we were we were fed really well um, from the training table in New England but like Tom had his own he had his own method, which he has since published—the TB, TB12 method for nutrition and training. I mean, obviously, he wasn't the fastest guy; he wasn't the most athletic guy. But you know, as a quarterback, he was—he was extremely intelligent. Um, you know, he—he—he was—he was worked perfectly in our offense with our offensive coordinator, Josh McDaniels. Um, there, there's no one better pre-snap than Tom Brady. He knew what the coverage was. He knew the matchup you wanted. Yeah, it helps to have guys like Gronk. But you know, it, like 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 Brady, just he was he was a magician at using pre snap motion and pre snap reads to know exactly what the coverage was going to be and get us into the right play. Um, and you know, it, it's kind of a it's kind of a, a lesser known attribute of his. But you know, it, a big part of playing in the NFL for a long time, no matter what position you are, is staying healthy. Hmm. And you know, Brady was. I mean, it, it's a skill for a quarterback to like avoid big hits. Um, you know, Big Ben, you know, Roethlisberger, he was different. I mean, he was like 280 guys, just kind of bounced off he of him.
2: Get, yeah, he was getting crushed, he but was he was still crushed.
3: getting rocked, and he had some injuries. You know, Brady was just—I mean, like he would go in i mean, I'm telling you, there were entire games where Brady would not get touched, and I mean, that's—you know—you you multiply that out over a 20-year career, and that's how you play that that long at a high level. You just you're not really—you're um, not just getting rocked like a lot of these QBs are.
2: So I, the reason why I asked that question, Jake, is because sounds like you, you just work your ass off to get to where you are, you know, fought tooth and nail to get to where you are. It sounds like, you know, you're a junior as a Razorback. Wait, you think I got what it takes to play pro? <laughs> and then the answer is, yeah, man, I think you could do it. So clearly, like, I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe you always dreamt of playing pro. Maybe it was, but maybe you didn't think it was a reality until that point. And clearly, I mean, Tom Brady, <sighs> I mean, I don't think anyone ever thought he was going to be the best quarterback that ever played, but I agree with you. He, I think he's the best quarterback to ever play the game um and, and this is what I tell my son now is like yes I know that you know working your butt off playing a sport like sometimes it's just about who works the hardest because like you Jake I've never been the biggest strongest fastest most intelligent but in you know and I i never had what it take to, uh, to play division one anything or pro anything but you know hard work and dedication you know, applies to all areas of life as well, whether you're you know, trying to excel in business or get a book published or run for office or whatever. And so what I was tr- always try to tell my kids is like, look, man, there are always going to be somebody better. There's always going to be somebody faster. There's always going to yeah. be somebody stronger. But what sets you apart is what you do with it, what your work at work ethic is, What what's your attitude like. And it sounds like both you and Brady, two NFL players on the Patriots, had a similar attitude.
3: Yeah, that's very well said, and it's a lesson for everyone. Um, you know, whether you're a, a parent of small kids, or you're a leader in an organization, or even even as a follower, you know, someone who aspires to, to lead uh, a group of people, or a, or a company, or, or whatever it is, um, you know, you've got to have the the mentality that um, you know it's it's not always going to work out the way you think it is. You know, you're going to be faced with adversity, um, and that's not always a bad thing. I mean, Brady was. He was the the seventh quarterback drafted in his draft class in in the year two thousand, and um, you know he, he kind of had to have a lucky break to get his to get his shot with the Patriots with Drew Bledsoe getting injured. But you know all of his preparation and all of his hard work, you know, kind of got, got him that that opportunity, um, and and he seized the moment and made the most of it. And you know that's that's kind of what that's what I tell young people, and, and and that's the the advice that I try to give to. Um, to, to to young leaders everywhere is is that you know you've you've got to separate yourself you've got to be willing to do things that no one else is willing to do and then when you have that opportunity you you can't let it slip you have to you have to be ready to seize the moment because you don't know you know when you're going to have other chances and that you know. You don't know when you're going to have injuries. Um, like, like everyone in the NFL has injuries. I mean, you, you're not going to know when um, you know, when you're in the military when things are going to go wrong and, and there's going to be a, a leadership shuffle or you know whatever it is. You don't know whether you're going to get the deployment or not. But your 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 job and that was kind of Bill's mantra. Belichick's mantra was to always do your job and you know not not you know ignore the noise. Focus on what you can control. And, and when you're called upon to act and to do your job, you're ready to do
2: it. Man, so. You're on the Patriots. You end up getting a Super Bowl ring with them, Jake. And you transition off the team. Do you have an injury or something like that?
3: Yeah, I had a, had a, a really unfortunate streak of injuries. Um, had a knee surgery, a, a shoulder surgery, and a core surgery, like basically all at once. Oh. Um, and that, yeah, that after four years, that,
2: that pretty much knocked me out of the league. So you transition, and now you're an ex-NFL player. Um, how old are you at this point? I was 26. So you're 20. So you're 26 years old, and then you make the decision to enlist in the army. Where the hell did that come from?
3: Yeah, that, that's the question my parents were asking. <laughs> it's um, crazy. So I I, 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 mean, there's a little more to the story. I, I, I got hurt, and I was, I was out of the league, and I was kind of at a crossroads. Like I, I knew that, um, you know, just to back up a little bit, there was a guy who was a very influential part of the Patriots organization. He was a former uh, Navy SEAL, a, a SEAL Team Six guy, who was a childhood friend of one of the coaches, and he was always hanging around the team. And I, I always found myself talking to him. And um, you know, his name is Dom. And um, you know, he, he, you know, just just hearing his story and what he had done and what he was doing, he was still active at the time, um, you know, with the East Coast SEAL teams. And um, you know, I, I was, I, I kind of came to the decision um, that you know, when I wanted to play football for as long as I could, but. I made the decision that you know, whenever that day was over, where I was no longer in the NFL, you know, I wanted to serve in the military. No, no one in my family had ever joined the military. I mean, I had some distant relatives who had who had been in, um, but that was just that was a calling that I, I really couldn't explain where it came from, other than it was just something God put on my heart, um, you know, through Dom and through some others. And I mean, I've always been a someone who loved history and has always looked up to 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 soldiers and statesmen and people who have had that in their background. Um, but, you know, so, so I got hurt my fourth year and, um, I was kind of like, well, you know, I I can try to hang around the league for a couple more years and, and see if I can make another roster or I can just, you know, take all these surgeries and, you know, take some time to get healthy and then go to the army. Um, and so I actually went to law school for a year. I went to, I went to Georgetown law in, in Washington, DC. And my, my original game plan was to, was to get my law degree um, you know, get my JD past the bar and then go in. I still wanted to do infantry, but I figured I would still be young enough. And yeah, you know, my, my dad's a lawyer. Like I've always, you know, I always wanted to, to just have a legal education, never wanted to practice law, but I figured why not. And when I was, when I was in DC, when I was in law school, um, I, I got to know some great people in town and people who had been in the military, people who were still in the military. And I, I kind of told them my plan and every single one of them to a man was like, Hey, look, you know, you're still relatively young. You're healthy now. You know, if you want to go, you know, you know, be in the infantry and go through ranger school and do all that, like you should do it right now. You know, while you're still young. Um, you can always go back to law school. Um and, and I, I really thought about that and prayed about that for a long time. And after my first year of law school or first year and a half, um, you know, that's when I decided to 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 drop out and join the army.
2: Man. That's so you enlisted and go to to OCS?
3: Yeah. So I went through um basic training. Uh I, I was on an OCS contract. So I did basic, um, you know, as an enlisted soldier, and then went through officer candidate school, um, which is a pretty good deal. It's it's a twelve week program, um, and once you successfully complete that, you commission. Uh, I branched into the infantry, um, and then did yeah the the infantry basic officer leadership course, and then <laughs> ranger school, and then went to the hundred and first.
2: Jake, I I wish I could describe in words adequately for people that are listening or watching. How you go from the top of the top on the New England Patriots to going to be an OCS? Like you've gotta like that's an unbelievable thing. I mean, like, you go from being a professional athlete on the best football team in the world to being the lowest of the low in OCS. OCS sucks. I remember watching those those OCS officer candidates run around with little ascots on. Like you, you have nothing. You you go from the top down to nothing, essentially. And God, talk about humility, man! Because there's no way you can do that without a sense of humility.
3: Humility is a great word. Um, I, I I remember that feeling, you know, going from my, you know, I lived in Boston when I was with the Patriots, and you know, had a really nice apartment in Boston. And then when I was in DC, <laughs> had a had a nice apartment in DC. Um, and then I go from that to being in a big open bay with bunk beds <laughs> yeah. and like 60 uh, basic trainees. Uh, and then going from there to slightly better accommodations at OCS um, and I, I just remember like yeah I mean you know he, here we are you know you wanted to serve you know this is this is part of the deal um you know humbling yourself and um you know going to 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 wear the uniform and and you know just be uh, be whatever your rank and your accomplishments ascribe you to be uh, which is what the military really is and um, you know, I, I, think a lot of my, um, you know, fellow, uh, basic trainees and guys in OCS and, and on and on, you know, some of the, the cadre instructors, you know, they, they figured out who I was and, you know, they, they respected what I was doing. And, um, you know, I just, I didn't, I didn't want to big dog anyone. I mean, not that you can when you're in that position, but I just, I, you know, I wanted to go through the process. Um, I wanted to do it just like anyone else. Um, and it was a it was a great experience. I mean, it was it wasn't fun by any stretch of the imagination, but um, you know, it was a it was a good. I, I think football it was a great preparation for a military life. I mean, there's there's a lot of symbiosis there. You know, at the University of Tennessee and Knoxville, their big stadium is named after uh, General Neyland, who is a former. Uh, you know, uh, army general, um, you know, who then became a longtime coach of the Tennessee football program, and you know, Douglas MacArthur obviously was a lifelong supporter of the of the West Point football program, and you know, there's just a lot of there's a lot of crossover there um, between football and the military, and um, you know, I, I was I was well prepared for for the rigors of a military life. Except maybe Ranger School. I mean, as you know, like no one can really prepare you for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but, but um, you know, I, I was—I I went in. What, what I will say is, I went in with the right mentality. That you know, I'm I'm, I'm humbling myself. I'm 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 becoming. A, I, I'm I'm engaging. I'm I'm accepting this process, whatever it is. Um, and and I, you know, I, I I look back and I have no
2: regrets. People, people often ask me, like young young soldiers, pr- prior to going to Ranger School, like what's the secret? And I'm like, just don't quit. It's really, yeah. really, it's just that simple. I mean, there are going to be a million times where your mind is like, screw this. Like, you don't actually have to go back to your unit with a Ranger tab. I'm sure they'll just give you a platoon anyway. Your mind plays crazy tricks on you in that way. Um, but yeah, just to, to hear the mindset that you went into Ranger School with is is really, uh, man, that's spot on. Just accept the process for what it is. Know that it's gonna suck. Um, yeah. Just commit yeah. yourself to not quitting, right?
3: Yeah. And, and I, yeah, I, I did a um, after I got done with Ranger School, I, I I wrote up this like Ranger School guide that I that I gave to a few people, and I, I did a podcast on what Ranger School is like, and I just it's exactly what you said. I mean, Ranger School sucks. You, you just you just got to accept that simple fact that hey, this is you know for forever however long you're here, you know it's just gonna suck. It's not you're not gonna die. It's not gonna be, you know, it's 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 gonna end one day. But if you have the right mentality that, you know, hey, like when I, you know, when I cross over this threshold here and and you know, start standing on the rocks um, you know, at fourth RTB, you know, wherever it is, like <laughs> I, I'm I'm not leaving this place exactly. unless I'm unless I'm dead or have a tab.
2: Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> and, and and that's really, you know, like if, if you go into it with that mentality, you're probably going to do all right. And I, you know, I've got a buddy in, in Texas. Um, you know, he, he recycled, he, he recycled every phase. I mean, he spent like <laughs> six months in school. I mean, you know, with, with, with best Ranger. I mean, he was there for like six oh my months,
2: God! And, and, but, but like, horrible.
3: he just, but, but, you know, we were laughing and, and, you know, you, you understand it. Like when you have the mentality like, Hey man, like, you know, I'm not leaving, you know, I'm just, I, I'm not leaving without a tab. Um, you know it's it's not fun to be there for six months but like you're you're just you're not gonna leave until you graduate
2: i it's so true i mean and and for again just so people understand like the best ranger competition i can't quite remember what it happened in in april or something It's in like, april yeah, yeah so happened. like yeah so i was class initially i was class five i started ranger school in february i think it was class 405 i graduated class 505 i can't quite remember one of those two yeah. um but Yeah, I had I I recycled my first phase. I I recycled into Darby. So I didn't I wasn't a day one recycle. Uh, So I got to do the patrols over. But I knew that if I failed that next go around, I'd be stuck in limbo while best ranger was going on for like three weeks where you're just doing nothing but painting rocks black and gold and like raking leaves in the wood doing every shit detail that there is around fort benning (laughs) moving
3: sandbags from here to there
2: yeah (laughs) and so i went into ranger school i was 6'1 225 pounds running six minute miles i left that school 160 pounds yeah i mean it's brutal it's
0: brutal
3: yeah Yeah. I, i went in like 242 and came out right right at 200 um, my my mom cried when she saw me uh, <laughs> at, at, at Victory Pond. Uh, I tried to warn her. I was like, "Hey, I, you know, I don't look very good right now." <laughs> you don't. <laughs> um, See, you, you,
2: you don't. I mean, it's crazy.
3: It's yeah, crazy. But you know, but the, you know, that was. I mean, I'll, I'll put that experience up with anything else. I mean, just that sense of accomplishment and just knowing that, you know, like like you know, getting your tab doesn't make you some kind of a super soldier. But you know, at least your your soldiers and your platoon know. Hey, like this guy at the very at the bare minimum, like he did something that was really challenging. You know, he, he had what it took to get through that process. Um, You know, he's got some leadership ability, he's got some skills, he's got some toughness and that's, you know, that's really, you know, that's what that meant. And I was, I was very proud to do that, as I'm sure you were
2: too. I mean, I, I, yeah, and you're right. It doesn't make you a super soldier, but it just gives you a sense like, Hey, I did it. You know, Um, I committed myself to this. It sucked real bad, but I did it. And then, yeah, I ended up going to my unit. I was up at the 10th Mountain Division. But you go to 101st Airborne, you take an infantry yeah. platoon. Like I don't want to keep you for too long, Jake, because I only said it would be like about an hour. But what the hell? You go from NFL athlete to bottom of the bottom as a basic trainee, and then OCS, and then you're just Ranger. You're a Ranger candidate, and then you go to being a platoon leader again. What leadership lessons did you learn as a Division One college athlete and then professional athlete on the Patriots? And then Patriot way, did that make its way into your infantry, infantry platoon in, in in any way?
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I I'll tell you a funny story. You know, when I when I got to my unit um, and I got to my platoon, you know, I wanted to I wanted to be as low key as possible. You know, just just like my mentality. I mean, I didn't want to be like the former. NFL guy. And like, you know, I, I wanted to be, you know, just, Hey, like I wanted to be Lieutenant Beckett. I wanted to be a good PL. You know, I I wanted to do my job and train, train the men. Um, and you know, we were, we we had just got back from a deployment. Um, you know, I, I deployed to Iraq and then came back and it was really funny. So, um, we we had just gotten back and, um, if you like ESPN, uh, Tim Tebow did this thing with ESPN every year. Where um, it was like a salute to service thing every Veterans Day, and what they would do for this salute to service special is they would go to a military installation, um, you know, like an Army base or a Marine Corps base, or I think they went to like an aircraft carrier one time, and he would just like you know t- Tim would kind of go through some of the training and like talk to some of the soldiers and obviously talk to the to the base uh, commander or whatever. And, you know, I didn't even know this, but like when I was in Iraq, they, the ESPN people had selected the 101st Airborne for 19. (laughs) And, you know, Tim and I were teammates with the Patriots and Tim starts talking to um, the producers at ESPN and said, hey, like I've got a former teammate who's with the 101st. Like, let's, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's get him and, and, and make him a part of the part of the program. And so, you know, I, I get a call one morning, um, you know, from my battalion commander and for all your listeners, you know, like you never want to get a call from your battalion no. commander. And <laughs> he, he called me on my cell phone and said, Hey, uh, Lieutenant Beckett, like, you know, report to my office immediately. So of course, like, you know, I, I, I'm thinking, you know, something horrible has gone on and he's like, Hey, um, you know, the, the, the CG, the, the two-star general, uh, the commander, of the 101st airborne division is, you know, you're, you're requested to go meet with him today. I said, like, what? And so I I scramble up to the base headquarters and I'm met by the uh, public affairs officer for division. And he's like, hey, uh, tomorrow morning, 0800, you've got an interview with Tim Tebow. And so, long story short, we do this interview and they wanted, it wasn't just a sit down with Tim, um, they, they wanted to film me doing PT with my unit. So, so 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 yeah like you, you you see where this is going like I'm trying to be like the no nonsense like like, like you know forget about the football career like you know, we're, we're here to work and like my first week doing pt with the unit I've got an ESPN camera crew following me you know doing like you know sprint intervals with my platoon um you know right there at Fort Campbell so you know, my whole uh, you know mission to be like under the radar was what kind of went up in flames. But you know, I, I did like I, I had some good uh, some good lessons from from the the, the Patriots, and you know, I, I, I kind of taught my platoon the Patriot way. You know, the the four rules of the team. Um, you know, Belichick had this sign on the door. You know, when you come here, do your job, work hard, be attentive, put the team first. And, you know, those are the four lessons I gave to my platoon. I mean, those are good lessons for anyone. I mean, Absolutely. do your job, work hard, be attentive, put the team first, put the platoon first. And, you know, like that was my direction to my squad leaders. Um, that's how they train their fire teams. Um, you know, it, it's again, like you, you kind of I, I learned some lessons from the University of Arkansas. Like, you know, sometimes you got to you got to scramble some eggs You got to get people, um, you know, bad apples out of your organization to make sure everything's going in the right direction. Um, but you know, again, it was the, the football life was a good preparation for, um, you know, leading a rifle platoon. And, you know, I, I had a really, I had a really great experience,
2: man. That's unbelievable, Jake. I, I, I mean, I mean, I had a lot of, uh, fellow platoon leaders who were with me, who ended up commanding in the 101st airborne, probably around the time that you were there yeah. when I was a, a captain. I think I was uh, an executive officer I was a senior captain something like that. We had Villanueva who came into my unit and I remember we remember thinking like some of the senior captains in my in my battalion were like how the hell is this guy going to fit in a Humvee? They, yeah. they must have thought the same damn thing about you. How are you yeah. not getting shot up? How are you get how do you fit in an up armored?
3: Yeah, yeah, for real. I mean, it's uh the, the military didn't have me in mind and they de-
2: No, yeah. I mean you and plus you got all the gear on, man. You got your IBA on, you've got I mean, how do you how do you even oh. make that work? You're in the light infantry, so I mean, but you're mounted all the time.
3: Yeah, it was miserable. I mean, the, the UH60s, obviously those seats are tiny, and you tiny. know you've got yeah. I mean the the Humvees, the gun trucks were awful, but you know it it is what it is. I mean, you, uh, <laughs> you know, if if yeah, if Villanueva could do it, I mean, I think he was like six eight. Is like six eight. <laughs> um, I'm only about six five, so you know it was it was it was doable, but it wasn't very pleasant. You probably had
2: private. Hey, if if we if we end up getting ambushed, hide behind the LT. He's a yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> I'll, I'll be the, the bullet catcher, you know.
2: So, like, you go from being a light infantry platoon there. So, how do you train? You get out? You get out after four years, or what?
3: Yeah, I got out after my initial contract. Um, it was just under four years. Um, it, you know, I, I was at that you know inflection point where um, you know I I had I I really had a good initial run. I mean, I, I got the schools that I wanted. Um, I got to deploy, which was pretty rare, um, you know, during my time. Um, and I, you know, I had a good training cycle, um, at home station and, um, you know, really what, what really motivated me to get out was, um, you know, the, the events of 2020. Um, you know, I mean, just everything that was happening in the country. Um, I, I, I just, I really felt called to, to get involved at the political level and, um, you know, nothing against anyone who decided to stay in. And, you know, I've still got some very good friends who went to the captain's career course or, you know, went to, went to a Ranger regiment, or, um, you know, I've got a guy who just made it through selection and I mean, like, like really great friends
2: of mine, but, um, you know, I just, I felt my calling was, was, was in the political arena. I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, obviously that process, I mean, I got out in 2010, didn't run for office until 2020, but, 2020 was a strange year, you know. I, they, and I'll tell you this: like the Democrats, absolutely. And we'll get into. The, I mean, I don't want to drag this out too long for you, but I definitely want to talk about your Senate run because you were an, an incredible candidate. I mean, one of the things that I realized very early on when I was running is that politics, campaigning, meeting the people—it's—it's it's the best thing in the world. I, I loved that part of it, but so much of it is like. You know, seventh eighth grade middle school bullshit like where yeah. you're getting attacked on things it's like wait i've been a public figure for 10 years and now you're attacking me on this like what is what are we yeah. in junior high you know yeah and i know that you had to have had similar experiences but to hear you say that 2020 was sort of an inflection point for you it doesn't surprise me because it was i i look i mean god it wasn't that long ago jake but that was a very, very, very strange year, and things I feel like have just gotten progressively worse since then.
3: No, I, I truly believe, and not, not not to be overly dramatic, but I, I think 2020 was a, a turning point year for our country um, in, in a too. lot of ways. The, the social contract was was broken irreparably. Um, I mean, even in in red states, in places like Arkansas, um, you know, we had you know casinos and strip clubs uh, and liquor stores were open. But you know, churches and schools and businesses uh, were closed, and you know that, that like like that's the kind of thing you know the people people want to just kind of forgive and forget. You got people like Fauci out there who are saying, "Oh, you know, we just got to let bygones be bygones." Like, no, we haven't even addressed like we haven't even begun to address what happened, and, and you know that's that's a subject agree. for a different podcast, probably, I- but. You know, that, 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 that's, what, that's what really motive, motivated me to get involved is because clearly our political leaders are failing, They were, especially on the GOP side, in my opinion, in these deep red areas. They were totally unequipped to meet the moment. I mean, for, for a lot of recent American history, uh, unfortunately, we have outsourced uh, political leadership in our republic to people who are just not equipped for, for bold and courageous leadership. Um, you know, they're just kind of middle managers. And you know that's fine when things are on the glide path, and you know we're the last industrial power standing after the destruction of World War II. Um, yeah, I mean anyone could run America, and things would be fine. But those days have passed, and now we're at a point where we need great leadership, and we have people who are in power who are totally unequipped, um, just constitutionally for what's necessary. And so, you know, it, it's it, it has been good to see. Um, you know, people who kind of have that leadership gene, if, 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 if you will, uh, you know, striving to get involved in politics. It's really hard to break into that as, as you, know, you and I know and you know, other great candidates across the country who were you know, unsuccessful in the past couple of cycles. Um, you know, hopefully there will be other opportunities for other good people to run in the future. But, you know, the, these, these people, these politicians, the career political class and the consultants and the media and everything that's kind of in conservative ink, as we call it, you know, they're not going to let go easily. This is their life's work. I mean, they, they've built up these institutions um, to enrich themselves, to give themselves uh, self-esteem, kind of a, um, you know, a semblance of meaning. You know, these are, you know, the, kind of the, the people who I call the nerds, um, you know, the, the people who were getting stuffed in lockers in high school. Um, you know, this is, this you know, th- this is their thing. Like politics is their thing. You know, this is kind of, a, it's a revenge of the nerds situation. And they're not going to let the real leaders, you know, take away what they think is rightfully theirs. So it's going to mean it's going to be hard. I mean, that was you know one of the one of the benefits I think of uh, of Trump, you know, getting involved and obviously winning in 2016 was he he kind of changed that dynamic at the national level. But we've got to we've got to change that dynamic at every level of politics, local, uh, mm-hmm. district wide, and statewide. Um, you know, so it's it's a it's an ongoing process. It's it's going to be a brutal brutal process it already has been um you know it's 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 hard sometimes to stay optimistic about it but you know we're i I firmly believe that god put us here in in this time uh in in these circumstances for a reason um and you know it it might have to get worse before it gets better but you know i'm i've made a commitment i'm going to stay engaged in this fight i know you will too um because we need we need good people you know it's it's revival or bust in america
2: it is revival or bust. I think you're 100% right. And and you know, there are, there are some leaders in Washington on our side. Some few. But leadership in today's day and age in Washington D.C. is few and far between. And I, what I've seen is just people who hem and haul and test the political winds prior to making a decision. And I lament that fact because you know, you have consultants who would say, well, don't take this position, don't speak, especially like it at, at the tail end of 2020, going into the 2022 cycle, I, I talked about, you know, I went after Fauci a lot. And yeah. some people are like, oh, he shouldn't do that. Most Americans like him. I'm like, no, he's a crook. He aided and embedded people who locked this nation down. As a candidate in 2020, I had to, I had people calling me every day, Jake. I'm yeah. losing everything. I can't go talk to my loved one who's dying alone. My father is trapped in a nursing home and there's nothing that I can do. My business is bankrupt and there's nothing I can do. Every single day, I watch this pe- the people of my state go through that while I had people saying, oh, don't go after. Free. He's the one responsible. And you know why I'm going to talk about it is because I trust in my ability to go out there on a soapbox in town square and sway public sentiment. But that right there, Jake, that is that I know that you have that, you know, but there are so many politicians that are afraid to take stances that require the ability to sway public sentiment one way or the other. And as a conservative, it's really difficult because you have the entire media industrial complex uh, standing against you that just do nothing but lie as a matter of routine in service of whatever political goals that they have. You have Hollywood who is completely stacked against you. You have almost the entire education system. Completely stacked against you, but that's why this moment that you're talking about, I think, requires such a unique style of leadership—one that you, Jake, are well equipped to handle.
3: Well, I, I appreciate that, and I think you're exactly right um, because it's one thing that unites, uh, you know, the 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 left and the phony right in D.C. You know, what we call the uniparty. You know, one thing that unites them is defeating outsiders. You know, defeating people who are actually going to speak the truth, you know, as you were against Fauci when it wasn't popular. Of course, that's popular now. But, you know, there, there's in politics, there's no bo- bonus points for being early, for being right early. I mean, ask, <laughs> a- ask, uh, ask Pat Buchanan. You know, Pat Buchanan, I mean, if, if you haven't read any of Pat Buchanan's works, you know, your listeners, you know, you know go, go read some of his stuff. I mean, he ran for president in 1992, basically on the platform of everything that you're hearing today um and just because he was right 25 30 years ago you know doesn't mean um it doesn't make a hill of beans of a difference you know it's you know being right early doesn't matter at all actually it makes you a villain villain actually it makes both sides of the political aisle unite against you because you're you're bad for business um and and you know that's what we're fighting against and uh, i kind of use this metaphor uh to talk about you know kind of a football metaphor again like Uh, It was kind of funny when, when, if you notice after NFL games, if you're watching like after the clock has run out, you'll see both teams kind of going onto the field to kind of slap hands and like take pictures. And, you know, we used to get like some hate mail uh, and and stuff on social media from like fans who would be very upset to like see uh, like the Patriots players, like, you know, kind of joking around after a game with like the Jets players Because, (laughs) because the fans are like, wait a minute, like I hate the Jets. Why are you so chummy, chummy with them? Well, that's how poly, that, thats how DC is. You know, like there's this fake fight, you know, red team versus blue team, and at the end of the day, at the end of the game, they're, they're they're taking pictures on the field, and you know, we as as the people or the fans are like, wait a minute, like there's there's a real battle going on in our communities, but we've got this fake opposition, this fake. Just this noise that's happening in, in the media and, and, and in Washington. There's just, there's very like, just very little you know real debate taking place. That's why I thought the, the the battle over the speakership was one of the very few instances in the past ten years or so where you get to see real real politics at the cutting edge happen in real time on the floor there's a reason why in DC these politicians they want to minimize that as much as possible they, they don't want open debate you know they don't want people to be exposed to parliamentary procedure and and, and to hear these things actually discussed red ver, uh, you know uh, Democrat versus Republican so you know I, I say all that to say this is that you know we've got to find a way as as real leaders as outsiders we've got to find a way to cut through that noise. You know, I, I think you know these types of platforms, these podcasts are gonna be a way to do it to reach people where they are without going through the filter of people who are, you know, their their interests are aligned with the status quo. You know, that, that's what a lot of folks don't understand about a lot of conservative media is that you know, they their you know, their their bottom line is is predicated upon sustaining this system, you know, sustaining the Uniparty, sustaining the fake fight you know politics for the sake of politics politics for the sake of who wins the election like if we don't win on policy then these elections don't really matter at all like like it's 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 about moving the needle you know that's why i ran um because I, you know that that's it's a it's a huge problem in these red states you know where you've got a lot of these politicians who are just i mean they're they're worse in my opinion than democrats because um, you know, they're, they're kind of controlled opposition. And they, you know, they, they because they're in safe red states and safe red districts, they're never going to lose to a Democrat. So they can basically just act like Democrats. Um, you know, so it's a it's a it's a battle that we you know, is really just beginning. Um, you know, it, we, we've got to step back and realize that, you know, the left, the victories they're seeing right now are, are the result of a 75 to 100 year process of conquering American institutions and, you know, we've got to have the mindset, you know, I, I know a lot of people they want, they want Caesar to ride on the white horse, you know, it, it you know, hey, you know, we, there, there might be some kind of a, um, you know, shot in the dark candidate who comes in out of nowhere. But really, at the end of the day, we have to build our own institutions and we have to have our own 75 to 100 year process to, to, to rebuild and, and retake, you know, this country or, or, or whatever is left of it. Um, I mean, that's a long answer, but I mean, that's really kind of the way I see things in terms of the state of play. You know, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. I'm not gonna tell people what they want to hear. I'm not going to say that, you know, red wave 2024 is going to save us because guess what? I mean, red wave 2010, red wave 2014, uh, you know, the Trump phenomenon, 2016, save America 2020. It like, the, the, it didn't work. So we've got to be honest with ourselves. And we've got to like take a step back and say, "Hey, what we're doing isn't working." You know, we keep investing all of our time, effort, energy, and money into this, th- this same process that is not giving us good outcomes. Um, and so we've got to start thinking about things in a different way, be more innovative.
2: I completely agree. You know, one of the things that I learned uh, both in my run for the House and for the Senate is the number one quality that that. Republican voters, our base, want in a candidate is their ability to fight and not back down on what their principles are. And to truly represent them and be willing to stand on the parapet and take shots if need be, not not ingratiate yourself with the media in the hopes that maybe someday you'll be a celebrity you know, walking on the red carpet at the Met Gala. No, screw that. If you're a Republican, or if you're a conservative or somebody that believes in this country, the heart and soul of this country and the Constitution, you have to be willing to fight like hell to save it, because our opposition. And when the Democrats talk or the radical left, talk, I mean, it's, you, I, I come from a family of union Democrats. Yeah. The Democrat Party today ain't the party that they were 50 years ago. Right. right. They're not. And so we have to be willing to fight and stand on the line and oppose people who want to fundamentally transform this country. And, and when I talk about when they talk about fundamental transformation they mean tearing down what was well i think you know hey america you know maybe we have you know some spots where we can improve you know what country doesn't but this is a pretty damn great place to be and anyone who's traveled around the world and seen what other seen what happens in other countries knows that america is the light in the world and we have to continue to fight to protect this for our children and our children's children
3: I, I agree. I mean, as part of the campaign um, here in Arkansas, I got to know a, a couple of families, um, and they were, they were families who, you know, one family came to America from uh, the country, uh, now it's Zimbabwe, then it was Rhodesia, um, and, and the other family, you know, came to America from Cuba. And, you know, both of those countries were taken over by, um, you know, hard-left Marxist revolutions. And, you know, it, 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 th- th- these people are just, I mean, they'll tell anyone who will listen to them, uh, that what they're seeing here in the United States are, you know, they're, they're seeing some of the same harbingers of what they saw in their homeland, you know, that was eventually uh, taken over and conquered to the point where it was unrecognizable, and they had to flee for their lives. And, you know, those are the stakes. And we, we have to, we have to be honest with people, you know, we, we have to, as you said, we have to be able to stand up and, and, and stand there on the ramparts and speak the truth. You're exactly right. I mean, if you're, if you're elected representatives if you're state governor if, if you're a favorite political candidate if he is not actively hated by every media <laughs> institution if he is not actively hated by the establishment in in the GOP or the establishment in uh, in Washington and the Democrats like if if you're if that person is not just public enemy number one then you know there might be a problem there um, because you know as, as you and I both know from our you know from our campaigns you know like you know, they, 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 these these people, the enemy, they, they know real opposition when they see it. You know, exactly. Vladimir Lenin, you know, when he wrote about the Russian Revolution, the group that he persecuted first in Russia were the true believer Orthodox Christians. And the reason why he eliminated them first was because he knew that they had real devotion. He knew that their faith and their worldview and their fearlessness meant they couldn't be bribed. They they wouldn't back down. They couldn't be bought off. They wouldn't go along with the red uh, cultural revolution. Uh, And so, like he he saw the warning. He he saw the danger signs from them. And so that's I I take it as a compliment. You know, every time that I'm attacked, um, you know, during the campaign and social media, whatever it is, I wear that as a badge of honor because you know the left and the establishment right. They know their enemy when they see him. And you know, to the people out there, you've got to follow people like that.
2: Man. Well said. and I, I, God, this country's lucky to have people like you, Jake. And you got to tell me, man, what's what's next for you? Obviously, you've know, we'll you got feel- your podcast, right? You've got your podcast. You're doing that now. What's what's the future hold?
3: Yeah, I'm still here in Arkansas. Um, you know, I, I love the state of Arkansas. This is my home. Um, you know, I'm still engaged in the fight. I mean, I, 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 the podcast has been great. I'm still doing a lot of media. Uh, I'm in the private sector here in Arkansas. Um, you know, but I I do want to stay in the fight politically. Um, you know whether you know however that manifests itself in the future, we'll we'll see. Um, but the, the campaign was a it was a great experience. We were unsuccessful, but um, as you said, there really is nothing like going around and and meeting meeting people where they are and and hearing their concerns. You know people people who show up to political events. I mean they. They really care, and, and we need more people who are motivated to do that. And I, I see that in churches. I see that in the community. Um, you know, as, as if there is a silver lining to um, you know the defeats we've had as a movement, it's that people are more engaged. That they see things going in the wrong direction, um, and, and so um, you know, hopefully, I'll, I'll have a role to play. Uh, you know, in the, in the fight to come, because there there are fights to come.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And I hope you're not counting out running for political office, whether it's for a house district or a statewide race. I don't know what that looks like. Obviously, you have to assess the battlefield. And I know that's a long, lengthy process sometimes. But I will just say this. You were in a multi-person primary against a Senate incumbent, and you did pretty damn well. I don't know, I mean, what the future holds if you get somebody one-on-one. <laughs> you know, uh, it could be an entirely different battlefield, Jake, and this country needs you. So so stay in the fight, my friend. I, uh, you and as well, Sean. Jake, I hope we can do this again, man. Like this, this was awesome. And I'm sorry that I kept you longer than I intended to, but no, there's so great, many man. questions. So many questions that I want to, I want, I still have to ask you. But uh, where can people find you now? So uh, follow my podcast,
3: uh, The Jake Beckett Show. Um, we're on YouTube, Twitter, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I'm really excited. I mean, just last thing, um, I, I'm really excited about the the changes on Twitter. You know, I, I'm starting to post my podcasts in, in full feature length on Twitter. I really think that this is going to be a platform where, um, you know, those of us on the right are going to be, you know, if not uncensored, the least censored. Um, but you know, anywhere you find podcasts, the Jake Beckett Show, I'm on Twitter at Jake Beckett 91. That's where I spend most of my time on social media. Uh, so the Jake Beckett Show and Jake Beckett 91 is where you can follow me.
2: Awesome, Jake. Hopefully, we you you can come back on and we can continue to solve all the problems of the world. <laughs> Just two knuckle draggers solving America's problems. We'll do it, baby. Two two eleven series guys saving the world. <laughs> that, that's 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 a podcast in and of itself, right there, brother. But thank Here you, you for thanks for coming on, Jake. Uh, and I'll, we'll talk to you soon, brother. Anytime, Sean. God bless. All right, everybody. That's it. Thank you for listening to Battleground Podcast, where we never retreat and we never surrender. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, follow us on YouTube and Rumble. Subscribe there as well. There'll be bonus content there. We're building out those channels as we speak. Don't forget to check out Battleground Apparel for top content quality patriotic clothing at official let you show your pride in america and together let's continue to fight for our country and never back down god bless you all thank you for listening and god bless this exceptional nation that we call home take care